At Microbe Mail, we love a good busting of a menacing myth. So we're doing it again. This time, we're moving it below the belt, taking you down under. Here comes a urinary tract infection myth-busting bonanza. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Microbe Mail. As always, I am your host, Vindana Chibabai. We have some exciting announcements to make. Microbe Mail is officially endorsed by the Department of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of the Witwatersrand. Also, we'd love to get easy one-step feedback from you, our listeners. So you'll also find a link to a feedback form in the show notes of each episode. All we ask for you to do is rate the episode from awful to amazing. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Marianne Black. Marianne is a clinical microbiologist based at the Charlotte Matkeke Johannesburg Academic Hospital Microbiology Laboratory. In fact, Marianne is my next door neighbor. Our offices are side by side, and we spend most of our day discussing clinical cases, laboratory issues, research, and student teaching related matters. So welcome neighbor. We finally got you doing your microbe mail debut. Thanks, Vin. It's a real pleasure to be here. As always, our quick reminder to sign up for updates on our website. Everyone on our mailing list also receives the episode storyboards once they are released. These make a really great pocket reference guide. If you know someone who may be interested in listening, please share microbe mail with a shareable, shareable kind of germ, unlike most others. And we're also available on all podcast platforms anywhere in the world. Lastly, you can follow us on social media. Any of the details and links can be found in the show notes of this episode. So, before I leak any details, let's start busting these myths. So, Marianne, the first myth I have is cloudy, foul-smelling urine in a non-catheterized patient indicates a urinary tract infection. So, when cloudy-smelling urine has actually got variable sensitivity in terms of diagnosing a urinary tract infection. Um, in the absence of symptoms, this does, does not meet the qualification for a urinary tract infection. So always examine your patient first before you turn to look at the urine for a diagnosis. That's quite helpful. I think everyone kind of thinks if it's cloudy and foul smelling, it must be a UTI. Exactly. So myth number two, every clinically suspected urinary tract infection case requires laboratory confirmation of the diagnosis. So this is also not true. So you need, you have those patients that will need, definitely need an uh, MCNS and those that you can treat based on the symptoms alone. So who will need an MCNS? It's usually those patients that are sick enough to be admitted to hospital, if they have any signs of pyelonephritis, um, and if you suspect any drug-resistant infection, for example, patient that's recently been on antimicrobials that's not responding, so those patients will definitely need an MCNS. So who can we treat based on the symptoms alone? So use, these are usually your, your non-pregnant young females um, with a simple cystitis, um, and the symptoms of frequency in dysuria without the presence of a vaginal discharge is usually 90% accurate in making the diagnosis of a UTI. So additional investigations like your urine dipsticks and your MCNS is usually not necessary in these, um, these young women. 
So quite important here that you mention the symptoms being the more important thing rather than going on the cloudy, smelly urine as the sign. It's really based on what the symptoms of the patient are. Um, and then myth number three, if the urine MCNS is culture positive, it must be treated. So I think we all, uh, you know, usually stand with a lab report in your in your hand. You've got you've got bacteria on the on the culture or pyuria, and you just want to treat. So so definitely not. Urinary tract infection is a clinical diagnosis. It's only confirmed by your laboratory specimen that you that's then submit, and not vice versa. So in the absence of symptoms, it is unlikely to be a urinary tract infection. Um, other causes of, of bacteriuria you know, may, may involve contamination from a lower urethra or the perineum um, when it's not a clean-catch midstream urine. Um, also, our patients with indwelling urinary catheters eventually become colonized. Yeah. Um, also, there's an increased incidence of asymptomatic bacteriuria in healthy, sexually active young females, and which we definitely don't need to treat. Um, bacteria in the lower urinary tract of young females with recurrent urinary tract infections. Um, so so there's studies that show that these bacteria may even be protective. So definitely we don't need to treat if it's asymptomatic. Mm. Um, the scenarios where we do need to treat or we would opt to treat, to treat is patients going for a urological procedure where, where there's going to be breaching of the mucosa. Right. Uh, your pregnant patients, because they are more likely to develop a pyelonephritis, which then may end up in a preterm labor. Um, and then your patients that had a kidney transplant in the last month, you may want to consider treatment of these patients. Okay, and then myth number four is the presence of pyuria indicates a urinary tract infection. So this is now different from the bacteriuria. Yes, exactly. So a pyuria usually is when there's more than 10,000 white cells per mole of urine detected um, in the urine. So remember that pyuria is present in many other conditions, um, not only in a urinary tract infection. Um, examples that I can think of is a patient that's very dehydrated, when there's acute renal failure, um, in inflammatory and autoimmune conditions, renal stones, um, any infection that's outside the urinary tract, so sexually transmitted infections, um, and then also intra-abdominal infections like appendicitis or uh, diverticulitis can also give you a biuria. That's just to move again to the point of urinary tract infection is a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. So um, once you've got a high clinical suspicion of, of a UTI, um, then, then only do you submit your specimen and not, not before. So again, just highlighting the fact that you know, with everything in medical practice, there must be a differential diagnosis. So there's a differential diagnosis for bacteriuria, there's a differential diagnosis for pyuria, and you need to think more broadly than just the simple UTI. No, exactly. And then myth number five, the diagnosis of a urinary tract infection using a dipsticks is accurate. So the urine dipsticks detects the presence of leukocyte esterase and nitrite in the urine. Um, again, 
the dipsticks shouldn't be your starting point. In, point there must be a clinical suspicion of a urinary tract infection. So we don't recommend using the dipsticks as a screening for UTI in the absence of symptoms, as the same reasons which we've uh, mentioned before. Um, we don't routinely treat bacteriuria or pyuria in the absence of symptoms. But in the presence of symptoms and a history suggestive of UTI, the dipsticks reliably detects the presence of leukocyte esterase and nitrites. So the sensitivity is around 80%. So just to note that, that nitrite is an indicator of the presence of the majority of pathogens causing UTI. So we think of E. coli, Klebsiella and Proteus. Um, and then other organisms like group B strep or the enterococci do not test positive for nitrite. So just to keep that in mind, um, when, when you've got a patient with symptoms and you don't have any nitrites on the dipsticks. So always stick with your clinical examination and diff diagnosis. And enterococci are a fairly common cause of urinary tract infection. So just to remember that that's one of the causes of a false negative nitrite no, on the that's dipsticks. True. Okay, myth number six. The method and timing of urine collection matters. So our ideal voided urine sample for evaluation of urinary tract infections is one that accurately represents the bladder bacterial count with minimized contamination by bacteria. Um, these bacteria usually colonize the distal urethra and genital mucosa. So in theory, this would be a clean catch midstream sample of the first micturition of the day. But in fact, there is no clinical evidence that this ideal specimen yields more accurate results. Oh, really? Yeah. So in a recent systematic review um, in 2016, um, they compared a clean catch midstream urine versus a midstream urine versus just a randomly collected one without any instructions. So they didn't find any important differences in the diagnostic accuracy among these different techniques. Oh. Yeah, so for patients in whom the cleaning step might be impractical, so especially in females, um, a midstream urine collected at the time of seeing the clinician uh, is likely a reasonable, reasonable specimen for analysis. Okay. And then myth number seven, the best treatment option, and we know this one is a common one we speak about all the time. So the best treatment option for a urinary tract infection is a fluoroquinolone. Yeah, I think often uh, people just go for fluoroquinolone when there's urinary tract infection. But remember, there is a black box warning label for the fluoroquinolones. So this includes, um, you know, higher risk of tendon rupture, tendonitis, and peripheral neuropathy, also um, central nervous system effects such, such as seizures. So definitely the fluoroquinolones we reserve when there's no other agents um, available or, or possible. Um, there's also to remember that there is rising resistance against the fluoroquinolones. So we've got a, um, a local paper uh, recently from the U University of the Free State so they looked at patients with community-acquired urinary infections, and E. coli had, had almost 20% resistance rates against the fluoroquinolone, so yeah. quite high. Yeah, I can believe that. Um, and, and it's not just locally, also globally, um, there, is, there is definitely a rise in the fluoroquinolone resistance in urinary E. coli isolates. 
So again, a, um, a recent systematic review just summarizing all the the evidence um, for E. coli resistance to fluoroquinolones in community-acquired um, UTIs in women. So, so there they saw an increase from 0.5% um, in 2006 to up to 15% um, 10 years later in the UK. In Asia, it went from 20 to 40%, and in North America, from, from 4 to 12%. So really, your choice of antibiotic um, depends on your local epidemiology um, and whether there's systemic involvement. So usually when there's systemic involvement, we prefer beta-lactam because these agents reach uh, good levels in the kidneys. Um, and then for un- uncomplicated cystitis, we've got quite a few agents that, that, we, that we recommend. Um, e-, e. coli is usually the causative agent in 70 to 80% of uncomplicated cystitis. So something that will target E. coli um, and a nitrofurantoin really remains a very good um, choice of antibiotic yeah, here. It's an excellent drug. Exactly. Um, and then others include cochamoxazole and phosphomycin, depending on what you've got available at your institution. And then when the choice, if you've got a choice between um, nitrofurantoin and phosphomycin, I would yeah. still recommend going for nitrofurantoin because a recent um, randomized control trial looked at exactly that. They looked at um, uncomplicated UTIs in 513 women, and the nitrofurantoin five-day course came out superior to a once-off dose of phosphomycin. So really, we do recommend nitrofurantoin as an empiric uh, choice for uncomplicated cystitis. Yeah. And it's a cheap option, I think, of the two as well. I'm sure it is, exactly. Um, and then also just talking about the quinolones again and how broad spectrum it is and thinking about antimicrobial resistance, we must always be concerned about the collateral damage associated with such broad spectrum agents. Yeah, for certain. Myth number eight then is only beta-lactams are safe to use during pregnancy. And we know that you know all pregnant women all over the world are always concerned about any kind of damage to the unborn fetus. Then quite rightly so. So most of the information regarding the safe use of antibiotics during pregnancy was obtained decades ago um, when, we, when they were still included in the study. So nowadays we don't feel comfortable with that anymore and they are excluded most of the time due to concerns about risk to the fetus. Right. So therefore we actually have very little direct information about the safety of the, of the newer antibiotics in pregnancy. Um, and the concern about the use of certain antibiotics generally de- derive from indirect evidence. For example, animal studies or observational studies that may have numerous confounders. Yeah. So overall, the safest course, I would say, is to use the antibiotics that have well-established safety profiles and to limit the use of antibiotics of potential concern to cases in which there are no other alternative agents. So, just to get back to the myth, in general, yes, beta-lactams are safe, um, but to avoid coamoxiclav near term, as we know, this has been associated with an increased risk of incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis in the infant. Yes, quite worrying. Yes, and uh, keftriaxone should also be avoided near term due to the increased risk of kernicterus. Mm. So, what other options do we have then? So phosphomycin is generally considered safe in pregnancy, and in several studies of single-dose phosphomycin during pregnancy, it was well tolerated 
and actors fetal effects were not observed mm. so that's some uh, you know that's good, a good agent yeah the other one that we've mentioned before nitrofurantoin is generally safe but they say to avoid in the first trimester first trimester if you can and near term um, and to remember that nitrofurantoin does not achieve therapeutic levels um, in kidneys good enough to, to treat pyelonephritis. So if you've got an upper urinary tract infection, um, you know, not to use nitrofurantoin. Avoid it, yeah. yeah. And then cotrimoxazole, also avoid in the first trimester and near term, but a patient in the second trimester, you can definitely still use it. Mm. Um, the, the, the agents that should be avoided altogether are the aminoglycosides due to the effect of autotoxicity, uh, the fluoroquinolones we've mentioned before, all the issues with them, and then the tetracyclines we know we should also avoid. Okay, so many more options than I think most people realize. No, definitely. There are definitely other options available. Okay, so we're going to move on to myth number nine then. To prevent recurrent urinary tract infections... The suggestions are to increase water intake, have front-to-back wiping in the female population, drinking cranberry juice, which we've all heard of, and voiding post-intercourse. So when all of these things sounds fantastic, but let's just look at the evidence and see if there's any, any truth in any of yeah. these. So, so we would say an otherwise healthy woman, a daily intake, intake of two to three liters of water may help to reduce the recurrence of a urinary tract infection because um, this helps to dilute and clear the bacteria. So there is some evidence um, for this. So unfortunately, the others, there isn't any evidence to suggest that it may reduce the risk. So these include the, the suggestion of wiping from front to back, to avoid the perennial contamination um, with fecal flora. Mm -hmm. um, so this has not been shown in controlled studies to be beneficial, but I think it makes sense as a hygiene uh, measure and as a prevention measure. Um, and yes. we do routinely still recommend, recommend it. it yeah. Yes. The voiding uh, of you know post-intercourse, this might be helpful, but again, it, might, it has not been shown in controlled studies to result in a reduced risk of recurrent cystitis. But it's, it's also unlikely to be harmful. So if, do, if patients do want to practice this, we won't uh, recommend against it. Right. And then the last one, the cranberry products. Yes. <laughs> so clinical studies have so far not definitively demonstrated efficacy in the prevention of recurrent cystitis. But I think if a patient wants to try it, I won't discourage it. Um, there might be side effects like heartburn, and they must just remember there's an increase in sugar intake. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> so I shouldn't go out and buy myself a cranberry bush. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we won't discourage it, but uh, something you can try. Okay. So we're close to our home run. We're on number 10 of 12 myths. And so myth number 10 is catheterized patients with candid urea must be treated with an antifungal. So definitely we do not routinely treat these. It will, it will result in overtreatment. So whenever feasible, we recommend the catheter must be removed or at the very least replaced. So candid urea are usually um, in patients, you can consider treatment in patients with, uh, with neutropenic sepsis or if there's very low birth weight infants 
only in those populations. Yeah, so it's a it's a healthcare associated uh, type of urinary tract infection, um, mostly associated with catheters, right? That's right. Um, so if you've got somebody in the community who gets cultures of candida albicans, for example, on a urinary uh, on, on a urine specimen, it's most likely just colonization. Exactly that. And you don't need to go and treat all of them. Definitely not. Yeah. Okay. Myth number 11 is quite an important one, I think. Any delirious elderly patient with pyuria or bacteriuria must be having a urinary tract infection. So I think this is, like you said, a very important one. So so you've got your elderly patient presenting to a casualty. He's delirious, um, you know, new onset delirium. And the urine dipsticks comes back positive and, and they think this must be a UTI. Let's treat the UTI. But I think the danger in here is that you're going to miss more serious conditions. So, so don't stop looking for other causes of delirium. Um, and also to remember that the rate of asymptomatic bacteriuria in the elderly institutionalized patient is 15 in, up to 50%. Um, so the recommendation is to assess for other causes and they need careful observation rather than antimicrobial treatment. So I would say in the absence of other systemic signs of infections like fever or hemodynamic instability, wait with the antimicrobials, work up your patient properly um, and, and come up with a diff diagnosis and, and not only to have urinary tract infection as, as a reason for the delirium. Yes, and exactly as you said, it comes back to myth number three and number four, where we said there is other differential diagnoses for pyuria and bacteriuria, and and quite worrying in an elderly patient who might be having really serious um, comorbidities. Yes. All right, we're on our last myth then. So five days of therapy is needed to treat an uncomplicated urinary tract infection. So, so again, this is not true. Uh, in some patients, you can you can get away with three days. And remember, with uh, an agent like phosphomycin, you may even just use a stat dose. Um, so, for uncomplicated cystitis, we say three to five days, and we are really moving away from from long courses of antimicrobial treatments. Um, you know, in in terms of trying to spare our antimicrobials um, for antimicrobial stewardship. Thanks. That's really, really important to mention as well. So, Marianne, before your take-home message, we're going to move to our spotlight feature for this episode. And we have yet another cute and clever little person doing a mini microbe message. This time, we have a mother and daughter team. And our special guest is actually Marianne's own daughter. So, Marianne, this is different from the usual thing. It's normally my guest who's hearing the message for the first time. This time, it's actually going to be a surprise for me. So, let me take a listen. Hi, I am Mia Black and I am seven years old. Did you know that your body has far more bacteria cells than human cells? They help with processes and as digestion of your food and they defend your body from bad bacteria of all the bacteria in the world. Less than 1% will make you sick. Many snacks like yogurt 
and these are all made with bacteria. That's so special, Marianne. What was her re- reaction when you told her that there's bacteria in, in her, her yogurt and her cheese? She was first of all not impressed, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we had really fun recording this uh, little fun fact. Oh, lovely. Is she still eating yogurt and cheese after that? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily she is. <laughs> oh, that's good news. <laughs> okay, so our last point would be a quick take-home message. So just remember that urinary tract infections is a clinical diagnosis. So as we were taught, so first take a history and examine your patient and then decide on your differential diagnosis before you start looking at the urine dipsticks or urine MCNS results. Right. We do, we do not treat all laboratory reports of biuria and bacteriuria, as this will most definitely result in overtreatment. Excellent. Thank you so much. Marianne, it was so lovely to have you on the show. We really hope you'll be able to join us again sometime soon on Microbe Mail for another episode. Thanks again for the invite, Vin. And I must say, I've also learned a lot uh, listening to your previous episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get your feedback by email, on social media or YouTube. And remember, you can click on the one-step link in the show notes to rate this episode from awful to amazing. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a guest or even suggest a topic, please send us an email at mail.microbe at gmail.com. That's it for me, Vin, your microbe messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.